0: How's everyone doing today? Excellent. Awesome. Well, glad to have you here uh, for our uh, December Soapbox. Really happy to have Wesley Yun of uh, Litro uh, come by. We'll get going and have a good talk. Thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. Thanks for making it out in the <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of Stormageddon. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. We all made it during Stormageddon, so <laughs> we're yeah. all here. Oh, I'm just going to adjust this seat so I'm facing you more, yes. as opposed to. <laughs> yes. Sorry, we're going to have a conversation. And we'll just be. <laughs> I'll get closer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do mingle. You know, I, 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 I kind of want to just kind of dive, dive right into it. You know, because you've worked on a lot of interactions, OS systems for a lot yeah. of uh, physical uh, hardware, and um, some of them top secret. But some can you just them. share some of what you were doing at Motorola? Sure. I mean, is this, is, it, is it no longer top secret? Well, no, all
1: of that secret is like now out in the world. Uh, you know, my my. You know, it's interesting because everything that you do sort of um, keeps moving with you. You don't leave all of that thinking at the last job. <laughs> and so, you know, this has always been my career where, uh, you know, I, I used to work in uh, at a company called Helio, and I used to work for a guy named Matias Duarte. And then I brought in, like, Daniel Shiplikov and I brought in Nathan, and we all thought about OS's for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're trying to create a new operating system for there, and he'd been thinking about it at Danger, where he made the Sidekick, and he came over and he started teaching us about it, and then we all lifted and we went to like Palm, and then right. we made the WebOS, and th- you know that thinking sort of picked up, and then he went to Android, and now he's running Android, and like that thinking just sort of continues forward; it doesn't just stop. And so <clears throat> the thing that I wanted to do at Motorola, which is a super top secret, irrelevant now because <laughs> Motorola is whatever it is. <laughs> um but the the idea was that Sanjay Ja who was the then ceo of the company had banked bet the entire farm on android uh ironically this is this is always one of those things in the valley that this always happens where um palm the web os uh would have been i think far more successful if verizon had actually Gone through with our deal. We were going to be the first to like introduce Spotify into the U.S., but because of legal reasons, it, mm. it didn't happen. Um, and they were going to bet bet really hard on WebOS, but then Motorola decided that they're going to bet hard on Android, and so Verizon decided they're going to start this entire Droid series, and they went really big on Motorola and pulled out of like WebOS, and so it's like one of those things where you're like, oh my God, the, you know th- these weird fates that sort of right. uh, move us around. All that to say, uh, went to Motorola, Sanjija disliked Android, or no CEO likes to be beholden to a secondary company or like another company <laughs> for its future. And you know, Android at the time is completely like, they won't tell you anything about what they're going to do next. It's their prerogative, they don't have to. Right. But now you're, you're betting the entire future of your company on this operating system that has you have no say into, right? And so this makes every CEO nervous. And so one of the things that he asked me to come do after I went to RIM, and I worked on Playbook, and was creating their next operating system, uh, which came out in the Playbook OS. Um, I went to Motorola to create a new operating system for them. And doing this, you you realize uh, there, there are moments in a designer's life where you realize, Oh, this is a death march. <laughs> like this is this is never this is never going to see the light of day. Clearly, but can we um, take this time to rethink operating systems from a fundamentally different level? Like, you know, one of the things that we really were interested in thinking about was operating systems. Uh, sort of came and came up through thinking about file system structures, mm-hmm. these kinds of things. It's never really thought about people. So like could we create the first operating system that sort of drops the from HCI like human to human interaction mm-hmm. instead of human to computer interaction. So like what does that mean? Well, can you it was, you know, 5 years ago I guess or 4 years ago. So we're at this point where what does it mean to have email? What does it mean to have messaging? What does it mean to have any of these things? It's just two people trying to communicate. Can the operating system abstract the transport so that we thread information between us in a sort of reasonable, coherent way. So I can send you a video and you could see it and you can respond to me in a text and I can respond to you in an email. And it, it all sort of threads as a single conversation. Now this turned out to a bridge too far. Like people <laughs> people were like, what? <laughs> um, and it's still too far. Like people are still working on optimizing email, which I think is useful and helpful, like great. But like nobody's thinking like, do we even need email anymore? You know, like, what is that? Why are we emailing people? This is a, a, a like a standard or uh, a, a thing that we've sort of adhered to since I don't know, since I was in college in, in the early '90s, uh, and Me it's, too. it still hasn't <laughs> changed. Yeah, it still hasn't changed, right? And yeah. so, like, can we? Uh, we took this as an opportunity, knowing that this will probably never see the light of day, to rethink uh, operating systems fundamentally, like right? from the human perspective rather than a computer perspective.
0: And and that kind of leads into a Question that I I did want to ask you—you'd you'd once said that uh, user experience is as broad or as limited as you want to be. Did I told I you. I did I, I did, did I, you say? Did I say that? Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. say that? Yeah, it's on—it's it, on the internet. Uh, <laughs> wow. The internet's what an did, amazing I mean resource. <laughs> I think we should all do something with it. Uh, what I, what but, could I possibly mean by that? <laughs> but what is user experience? Sort of when it does come to that physical product and operating system, because. You're talking about you know, trying to revolutionize it, think about it in terms of human interactions. Right. How do those two things actually meld together? Well, they haven't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, ha- hardware is hard uh, for an entirely different set of reasons than why software is hard. And um, we were talking about this earlier. There are very few companies who've matched this perfect trifecta. Like some have fi- figured out like hardware and software. But very few have figured out hardware, software, and servers, which I think is where everything has to move forward to. And nobody's really done a very good job of this. Maybe Apple, right? Is <laughs> everybody always points to Apple, um, and and that's great. Like, uh, uh, but their services sometimes suck. Like, I was on you know dot Mac, you know, like, and that transition to you know uh, iCloud or dot uh, me, all that stuff was. Bonkers, like that was <laughs> that was crazy bad. Um, but they've learned and they've evolved that over time. Uh, so hardware is hard for a specific set of reasons, uh, and that has nothing to do with software. And no one does this perfectly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the question was again. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the right amount of UX? Well, whatever, uh, like you you really have to start with what the people want to do with that tool, with mm-hmm. that device, and and try to. Th- Think about it backwards. Um, the other thing that I like to do, and when thinking about future UX, is just imagine that what we're doing right now is totally stupid. <laughs> you know, like think about like pagers or something like this, where you're like, "What? You had a, you get a page, you pulled the car off the freeway, found a payphone, put money in a payphone, and then you had to talk into <laughs> this dirty like handset, and hopefully like some static, through static you can hear what the person's saying. Like that's crazy." I try to explain that to my daughter, and it's like,
0: why, why would you do that? <laughs> what archaic world did you come yeah, from? Yeah, exactly,
1: were there dinosaurs? Did you like,
0: well, what's going on?
1: And, and so like, but it's difficult, because we get so caught in, in the world that we live in now, like we can't imagine not doing this, right? Like, We can't imagine like not playing games on this. Right. We can't imagine like what a world looks like when all of these things go away, which, you know, always does, it always right. changes, it always, uh, but, it,
0: the one landlined in the kitchen. Right, it's my horror story for all of you. <laughs> Don't right. Remember those days? Like if you had to try to
1: talk to like your girlfriend, yeah, you know, like or Mom. your friend. Yeah, I know <laughs> exactly. Or like there were like these tricks that I, I just realized that I was listening to this um, podcast called Serial, and I realized there was this trick that people used to do, which is uh, you would signal to whoever is calling you that you were gonna call them at a certain time and because you didn't want the landline to ring through the entire house, you called a service like weather or time mm-hmm. and then you'd get the busy signal, uh, or the person would get the, the call thing where, uh, the call waiting and, and then the, you can switch over and so you could talk to your girlfriend without your fam, like crazy stuff <laughs> like that where you're like, what are you talking, that was high tech at the time, <laughs> yeah, like call waiting was high tech. You know, that, that didn't exist before. But you know the, the the fundamental thing about that was that people two people wanted to talk <laughs> like like that's <laughs> just at the very fundamental level people just wanted to talk and hear each other's voice and there was uh, it's about connecting people and we we get abstracted uh, with all of this technology because we forget and lose touch and we always find new ways in which that happens but mm-hmm. um, to better or worse like uh, that either sort of exaggerates distance or uh, brings us closer.
0: Right. I- it, it kind of goes back to something we were talking about before before the interview, a little bit about like uh, how 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 do we get people to call <laughs> people more? <Yeah. laughs> that, that, uh, do you mind telling that story no, a little bit? not at all.
1: Uh, so I was working at a, uh, a company called Rim, uh, it's called BlackBerry, and and um, I remember the CEO uh, Mike Lazaridis uh, during my interview with him, he asked me a very sort of simple question, which was how do we get people to talk more on their telephones? And I was like. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I can't change human behavior. <laughs> like That's not something I can do like, as a designer. I mean, I can make the bigger button like, <laughs> so people accidentally call each other. <laughs> I can increase butt dialing <laughs> somehow. <laughs> like, I can't actually physically make people talk more. And I remember thinking about that because for him, um, and we were talking about this a little bit, which is that sometimes companies um, don't really think about their customer. Um, or we, as a customer, don't think about companies and who their actual customers are. So for him, his actual customers were like carriers or IT manager, all these people who are not the person directly making that call. Mm-hmm. Um, but for them, these concerns, like uh, he was very big into this concept of data packets, like shrinking data packets because we're choking bandwidth and everything is, that's not a problem people have. That's a problem carriers have and so he's always trying to solve these problems for carriers or IT managers to maintain security and they thought that the the business was uh, impenetrable like they they thought because uh, iPhone was such an open system uh, open according to them um, that they were never going to get traction in IT but then guess what people actually started bringing their iPhones and forcing their IT guys to make sure that their iPhones worked with whatever system because they got tired of carrying two phones you know um but for them, the customer was not the customer. the customer was the channel uh, right. and so this 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 is almost every corporation right like right. the customer is rarely the customer, like Nokia is a p- great example they they are they have some of the most talented designers I've ever ever talked to um, they they do so much research, they have so much data about like problems in the third world and how communication works for for people in like villages in like Southeast Asia or someplace like this and they'll sit in these huts with these folks who you know talk about how they use this transformative technology to change their lives but that's not who they sell to they sell to Orange they sell to Verizon they sell to these and and there's a huge disconnect between the company and the carrier and the the designers are always at the behest of the company to deliver to the, the customer which is the carrier.
0: carrier right it's not the end user it's, it's not the end user it's like this barrier in between the end user and the actual designer right yeah and, uh, and it kind of it kind of brings up a question that I, I had later on but I want to bring it up now is is that you know a lot of these companies are you know especially now snatching up designers and making them all in-house these larger Corporations. Yeah. How does how does a designer even begin to navigate that bureaucracy, that that mm. level of all these <laughs> yeah. things that are between them and their actual uh, customer, yeah. the real customer? Yeah.
1: No. This is um, this is slow, right? Um, but all change is slow. Which is that I feel like IDEO did an amazing job of convincing businesses that uh, good design is good business, right? And this was in the I guess '90s or mm-hmm. '80s, '90s. And they've done such a good job. And like someone like Samsung was one of the biggest um, sort of clients for IDEO uh, when they first came to the states. Um, but they've done such a good job now. Samsung has two thousand designers internally. They're they're one of the largest design organizations on the globe. Right, like, right. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that. Exactly. <laughs> because why? why? Why wouldn't you think of that? Because I think of Samsung as a big
0: bureaucracy.
1: Exactly. And so they've they basically placed all of these designers and they haven't tapped into the potential of what that means, right? Right. So here are all these people toiling under the same bureaucratic system um, that is really geared towards manufacturing and optimizing manufacturing. They've got sales down. They've got manufacturing down. They don't have software and experience mm-hmm. down just yet. But all those people, they don't go away. They just sort of keep getting promoted and promoted and promoted until they are in, they are in a position to make better decisions. Mm. And we talked about this, which is that um, design is one of those rare things where we think of it as a, a meritocracy, <laughs> and it's just <laughs> not. It's not true. Like we, we like to believe that we make beautiful objects and that people will celebrate it immediately, recognizing the genius <laughs> of our beautiful object. But it's not true. Like. Objects uh, get sort of molded and shifted based on different priorities in meetings that keep sort of pushing the product into different, um, Mm -hmm. into doing really different bad things, right? And all of those meetings, I've sat in enough of those meetings where I know it sounds really rational. It sounds incredibly reasonable. You know, if you're depending on whose priority you're talking about, like is it the business, is it the the you know the workflow, like. it, it just all of those decisions that happen in those rooms. These aren't stupid people, <laughs> you know. They're all very thinking, logical people who make really good decisions out of context. And they don't, the context is, who the hell is going to use this thing at the end, right? <laughs> right? If you're talking about like channel sales, shoving a television into a refrigerator makes total sense <laughs> because, you know, like like uh, the way that channel sales work is like, um, people go to the Best Buy and they look at all these features and they go. It's got ten things and a TV screen. This one doesn't even have a TV screen, and the price is about the same. Hmm. I'll take the one with the TV screen. <laughs> like that's how people make decisions. And then, of course, that gets back to the company. And then, of course, these decisions get made. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> like, why am I putting a TV <laughs> into a refrigerator? <laughs> that's crazy talk. But you know, it makes sense in that meeting. And so, like, all of these these decisions, they're they're really rational. I can't even remember the question now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it was about navigating yes. that that, that, uh, that bureaucracy and, and trying to work within it.
1: To me, design uh, moving forward is really, uh, as a director, it's not about designing anymore. I have incredibly talented people who will out-design me every single day. Right. What I've gotten really good at is navigating the bureaucracy <laughs> and, helping, <laughs> and making sure that I'm a, a careful steward and maintaining the integrity of their idea and the vision, moving it forward and you know, absorbing the right sort of feedback and making sure that you know we we maintain the soul of this product. You know, like because uh, those the, the integrity of products get sort of ripped apart um, when you start talking about bomb costs, when you start talking about uh, all these other things that have nothing to do with the customer.
0: Right, and that's a, that's a good segue. You're talking a little bit about design management. I kind of want to hit on it because it was something that we talked about. Uh, uh, previous, and I think it's a, we had a very interesting conversation, which I'd like to to share yeah. with the audience about that. You know, you're the director of design at, at Lytro, and you've yeah. been creative director, art, you know, uh, design directors at at, at at Motorola, and all that other stuff. I know you brought the camera too. Oh yeah, I did. So we might as well the, sure, the, the, ca- the Lytro camera. You know, he's got <laughs> props. He came with Shame, props.
1: Shameless self promotion. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so that's the camera. Um, uh, I didn't do anything about that. <laughs> 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 I had nothing to do <laughs> with it. It does <laughs> in the back. See, <laughs> it does. you can
0: catch up on downtown Abbey. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, this is <laughs> interestingly, this is running Android, uh, and so yeah, but, as everything is.
0: But, but we were, you know, we were talking about, you know, transitioning from being the designer who is implementing and doing the design work and, and just kind of doing all that, yeah, and then becoming the design leader, and that there's kind of almost like a mental shift. Yeah, and, and can you describe the kind of like that process for you because You had said something interesting in terms of um, it. It's like it could be detrimental for you to actually go in and do the design work yourself. Yeah, I mean,
1: this is one of those things. As our, I feel like our profession is constantly evolving, and even more rapidly now. Um, And so, you know, thank goodness a lot of us don't have to answer these questions like, "Oh, can you just make me that icon or draw me that button?" Like. But that's been replaced with, can you make me that wire? <laughs> like, like, can you draw me that wireframe? It'll take you five minutes, right? Like that. You know, so it keeps revolving, and so um, I constantly have managers. Not my current, my my current boss uh, really is uh, understanding and respectful because I think he he really wants to be. But um, a lot of uh, times I've gotten managers who, even design managers, who don't understand how much. Time and energy is required to managing a team, right? Uh, and so they always say, well, yeah, your team doesn't have time for that. Can you just draw that icon or can you draw this thing? And my tendency uh, from the past would be to say yes, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, so much of my sort of self worth or value or how I've ever measured myself in terms of advancing myself was always measured by my ability to be an individual contributor. And so making and crafting this thing is. Is sort of how I understood how I contribute back to the, the group, mm-hmm. um, but I find it detrimental to the, the at this point in my state, in stage in my career where um, people management is not a time efficient endeavor. Right? <laughs> people management is an incredibly taxing thing, and my tendency as an individual contributor is to put on my headphones, isolate myself, stop talking to everybody. If anybody disrupts me. It takes me like twenty minutes to reset. Like it could just be a question, like, "Hey, what's that?" <laughs> uh, oh, this. <laughs> this is a water <laughs> bottle. Okay, <laughs> and put my headphones back on. And it could be as innocuous as that. Like, "Where's that file?" or "Have you seen Dave?" or you know, like right. whatever it is. That question it resets me, and then it takes me like we're talking about this. It's like having to go back three pages to re- remember right. where you were in that flow. A- and. You don't want that as a design leader. You want to be disruptible. You want to help uh, people. You want to go to those meetings. You want to represent the team. You want to clear the brush from the path of the people who are trying to do their best work. And also, people need um, direction. People, and not like being told what to do. It's very different. I don't ever tell my designers what to do. I always try to reframe the problem and help them understand this is the problem that you're trying to solve. Does this solution that you're presenting solve that problem? Um, and and then we can walk through it and and work it out. Uh, And the beauty of that is that they always provide solutions that I could never have thought of. Um, Mm. A lot of art directors think that you want your designers to achieve the look that you have in your head or get to the solution that you have in your head and this is always not a good idea. Well, it's as good as your idea. (laughs) (laughs) It's only as good as your idea. So whenever I help frame the problem and I give my designers the freedom and the luxury to go explore and, and understand these things and, and then come to a solution. It's always better. It's always, right. it's always better. Well, because I only hire, hire talented people also <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> of course, <laughs> but,
1: but, but, but talented people want to work with me because the, you know, because I, I allow them the f- flexibility and freedom right. to actually perfect their craft, understand there's like, that there is uh, a bigger problem that we're solving. Right. Like, Giving them that, that context, giving them the freedom and the latitude to actually do some of their best work—that is a lot of work, <laughs> you know. Like, it, it, it,
0: make I make it look easy because
1: <laughs> <laughs> I look so relaxed, but it's <laughs> it's really like so much work.
0: It, it goes back to that uh, the player coach analogy yeah, you were using yeah. earlier,
1: right? I, I just I, I can't say that it doesn't work always, um, but I know like Google has this very sort of player coach model and. Uh, I know enough designers at Google who are like completely lost. they're like wandering in the wilderness because <laughs> their managers are so fixated on getting this solution and they don't want to share because it is it's really a lot of work to actually communicate to someone uh, that, that you're working with. Um, in order for me to explain to you the context, the business model, the engineer partner, the, the constraints, the you know the timeline, all of this stuff, it's faster for me to just do it. <laughs> like it's just it's just easier. Um, mm-hmm. But it does it doesn't do them uh, a service of, of letting them understand the, the problem, and and so it's always it will always be bottlenecked by me. So this player um, coach model is good if you're in a small enough organization that that's almost necessary. Uh, but once you start to scale that model doesn't scale mm-hmm. right and so um, e- every second that you take away from uh, your team to do your own contribution is I think magnifies depending on how many people that you have
0: mm. and, and so for yourself how do you how do you kind of let go of that innate need to create and to implement because I know I have yeah, this problem it, as I well like I'm like I want to do that thing because yeah. I want to because Fascinates
1: me. Yeah, no, it's it's difficult. I you have to work on your own stuff. Like I, I draw all the time. I, I work on my own things, but it's it has nothing to do. Like, but that that also takes away from my family time. Right, like, <laughs> like um, th- you know, this there is a um, uh, there isn't like an infinite amount of energy resources, brain space. Um, there's a finite amount, and how we choose to dedicate to what. Um, mm-hmm you know, that's, that's your life, right? <laughs> like, so like if you choose to dedicate it to helping your team, you're going to have an awesome team. If you choose to dedicate it to solving your problem, that's what you're going to have. If you choose to dedicate it to your family and spending time with them, guess what? Wherever you spend that time <laughs> is where you're going to see the most benefit.
0: Well, And I, I kind of want to segue back uh-huh. into, I know we got a little off track with the design, but I thought that was a very fascinating thing that we were talking about and I wanted to share that with the group. Um, but I do want to come back to 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 Lightro just a little bit because it's you know it is revolutionizing the uh, photographic industry yeah in a fashion and and you know how are you, how are you also doing that with like you have this physical camera right. and you have this software and how are you kind of reconciling those two things for someone that is a photographer?
1: Yeah, no this is um, I think I think of this camera as um, an interesting artifact like I always I'm always going through this um, exercise of what are we creating at Lytro? Like, what is it? Um, the physical uh, device is the clearest manifestation of uh, what the product is. But really, like, there are very few companies that are able to control um, the device for capture, the software for edit, and the the portal for display, right? Mm-hmm. And like, what does that mean? Like, what what, is, what does that mean for the file? Like. Canon is really good, Nikon is really good at making the device for capture. Uh, you know, <coughs> Adobe is very good at making the, the su- sort of tools to edit. Um, Flickr, 500 px whatever. They're, they're really good at displaying, um, and that's their core competency. Like, i try to bring that all into one team <laughs> with like four designers, <laughs> and <laughs> it's a really, really, um, like, that is really one of the biggest challenges is what do, what do you focus on, um, and to me, like, uh, the format is probably the most interesting thing. Like, and the things that you could potentially do with the format, because we own that entire pipeline, um, we haven't done yet. <laughs> I've only been there nine months. But, um, but also, it, it's constant negotiation of like, what is technically possible, and then the other side of my brain, which is like, should we do it? <laughs> you know, like, sure, it's technically possible, but should we do it? Like, that's that's always this conversation that's happening in my brain. So, I, I'm still trying to figure out what this is, but what I, what I know about um, this device is that um, it's difficult to use at the moment, <coughs> and I think um, it's intentionally difficult to use, right? Um, we, we give you a high degree of um, ability to manipulate, mm-hmm. um, and I'd like to sort of not take that away exactly, but um, make that easier, but also, Tap into this other segment, where, like, on principle, uh, I think there's something interesting that happened uh, with the advent of the iPhone, right? Which is Mm -hmm. that people who were not photographers take millions of photos, (laughs) right? And so, how can you say that you are not a photographer? And
0: poorly, if you're me. (laughs) No,
1: but I mean, there are tools like Instagram that helps Mm -hmm. you um, make your stuff look reasonably good, and I think. I think about like when I was in sixth grade and I was, this is a tangent. (laughs) When I was in sixth grade, I was starting to learn how to draw. Mm -hmm. And there's a disconnect between what I could draw and what I saw and wanted to draw. Mm -hmm. And so that requires some work, right? And there's a pivot point where people are discouraged because they don't get trained on how to draw. And then there are some who like really get into it and then they learn how to draw better. And I feel like that, that inflection point happens in photography as well, where people, you know, uh, when there, there was a cost associated with it, when it was a, like an analog equivalency uh, where you had to pay for film, pay for an expensive camera, uh, process the film. There was a physical artifact. Like um, once that sort of went away, people sort of felt good to take lots of, lots of photos. And then with the advent of like an Instagram, people feel good about the photos that they took. Right? right? It feels like whatever result that they had in their mind, like the skies look bluer, the grass looks greener, <laughs> your your face looks l- less blemished, <laughs> like all of these things that professional photographers are doing uh, and using their tools to to sort of simulate, uh, now you can do it in your own hand. And so like that to me is the, the way that like imaging moving forward has to sort of we have to support the photographers who want the sort of fidelity of controls. Um, But we also have to support people who are really into capturing images, uh, creating memories and moments. And to me, like um, my job as a designer of this product is to make it fun and delightful, but also um, the more important is to make sure that you capture that moment. Like we talk about um, this as a can't fail moment. Like to me, uh, like right now, the, the technology is a bit of a gimmick. Like the touch to refocus, right. you know. Most photographers say, "Uh, I don't really need that. I, I use focus to tell my story." You know, like why would I give that control to the user? Valid, totally valid. But um, to me, like the the moment you see the images that are produced by this camera, you realize that. Um, it's far m- far more immersive. It's far more like mm-hmm. engaging. And to me, the moment that this stops being a novelty is when you can win a, a Pulitzer Prize. Like you go to a war-torn situation, and the whole point of a Pulitzer would be to like transport you out of your complacency and into a situation that mm-hmm. you can't imagine, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then to place you there to understand the suffering or the humility or the you know whatever it is to sort of feel you, uh, transport you, and put you in a place that, you know, is uncomfortable for you. And I think, strangely, this technology is really great for that. (laughs) Putting you in a place that's like making you feel immersed in in the situation. It feels alive, it feels more tangible and therefore hopefully more relevant. Um, And uh, the the difference between um, a, a war photographer taking this camera versus their Canon or Nikon is dependability and mm-hmm. so there's a moment where you cannot fail that photographer like you can't be like hey can you redo that execution again because i my camera froze <laughs> and so like i really need you to electrocute yeah. that guy again <laughs> sorry right. like weddings whatever it is sure. like there's there's moments that you have to capture your it, kid it, there's walking a level the of raw
0: reliability that it has to
1: right happen. and so we talk about this as a the moment this is a, a serious tool is the moment that we we feel confident that this camera will not fail you, it can't fail. And so that to me is design more than like fun, de- delightful buttons or like fun <laughs> things. There are other places for delight and whimsy and fun. Sure. I, I'm not saying cameras should be devoid of fun, <laughs> but like don't There's get a in their way. There's a fundamental
0: purpose that you have to ach- achieve c- and adhere to. Thank you for articulating that better than I could. <laughs> oh, <laughs> i just keep that's rambling that's five that's more that's, that's what I'm here <laughs> for. But I, I, do, I, I do appreciate you, uh, 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 answering my questions, yeah. I want to throw it out to the audience. We yeah. have a few minutes left here, so we can ask a few questions from anyone out in the audience. I'd like to toss it out there. Yes. Uh, yeah, really good talk. Uh, Thanks. What do you see as the uh, primary, is there a primary
1: demographic or do you see broader than that? For this particular camera? For this particular camera, yeah, we would like it to be obviously broader. <laughs> but, um, as it is now, it, it is a tool, um, and it's it's difficult to help people imagine like why they need this tool because the tools that they have currently are good enough, right? Um, there isn't um, there isn't a, a thing yet where people are like, oh, I've got to have that. But eventually, this we hope to, to reach ubiquity where this this is not even like an issue. It's it's like if photographers have struggled for forever of like maintaining the computer in their head of like exposure and bracketing and focus and all these things uh, I think we should take the computer out of the person's head and put it into the computer and make the computer do all of the work So you can focus on composition storytelling all these things and all those technical barriers should recede over time Um, Unfortunately photographers are very very into the technical ability. They they really love the the minutia of like and they think of that technical barrier as uh, almost a feature, right? Like to uh, become part of my craft, to become part of uh, this sort of elite group. Technical mastery is part of uh, photography. And and to me, that makes total sense. Um, I, we were talking about Luddites. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm highly empathetic to Luddites. Uh, they're, they were craftspeople of their generation who were making beautiful woolen things that, all of a sudden, got obliterated by technology that sort of automated all of the stuff, and and so the quality tr- diminished, and all of these mm-hmm. things fell apart. But like, and to me, as 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 a craftsperson, I, I am highly empathetic. I don't think of uh, the, the, I know that the term luddite is very derisive or uh, pejorative, but I, I think about their struggle, and I think. I, I'm very sympathetic to photographers who want all the fidelity of controls. Um, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that every year moving forward, we will uh, produce more images that year than there has been in the history of all photography. Right? Like, And so what does that mean for photography moving forward? Well, it means capturing richer data and then being able to manipulate that data to tell the story better. And, and that I would love for the camera to be in service of that rather than... Um, sort of giving, while all the while giving photographers the comfort and, and the controls that they need to feel like they're they're getting the exact shot that they want. Yes. Uh, you talked about this kind of can <coughs> be difficult to use for the amateur. Yes. Um, is there some sort of like point shoot mode that you can just flip a switch and get to your camera? Uh, and I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love for that to happen. Um I can't talk about future products, but that like pr- on principle, like the principle of what you're saying is totally reasonable to me, right? Did I say too much? I don't know. <laughs> 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 uh I, I think um uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Launching simple kid phone <laughs> or kid, kid kid camera that's next year. That's the reason why I would buy this camera. Yeah. 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 Totally, and it, and of course we should do that, right? Um, it's always just a question of how to set the right priorities for automatic. Like my barrier is like, ninety-five percent of the times you get the shot that you want like in low light situations, in like sporting events where people are moving very quickly or the kids running around in the living room and it's fairly dark, you know, like, can you get that shot without a flash? I don't know, like, probably not. And so like, what is that barrier? What are the, the, uh, of course we should be able to do that, but what are the toggles that we sort of move to make sure that 95% of times you're pretty stoked? Um, But yeah, that, that should happen. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha 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 Totally. I mean, but this is this is always how it goes. Where we have to, um, like, this this is where it starts to get really tricky because manufacturing is really really hard, right? And so we can't just make ten products. We have to focus on one product, and then what is that market that it serves? So the very first camera that we put out was this uh, what they call the butter stick. Looks like a a square um, or a rectangle, and um, that was dead simple. Um, And you know. The traction was pretty good, but we, we thought here's a different market. We'll, we'll target this market, and it's got a better sensor, and it's got uh, zoom, and it's got all these things that uh, we didn't have before. And now um, people are like going the oth- other way. We're like, great, we got all that stuff. We'd like to we'd like it to be simple again. But in the same way, like initially when you bought your iPad, it was just for you, right? Like to do whatever stuff. And then all of a sudden it gets handed down to your kids, <laughs> and all of a sudden your kids are. Like uh, every kid I know has an iPad, but the idea of buying your kid initially at an eight hundred dollar you know tablet is like crazy, <laughs> but once you know this this always happens, but um the other thing about this camera is that it's all software, and so you can get a new camera almost every update, like we just put in a new feature where um uh, I think I can talk about this here uh, which is that. Um, people love taking photographs with like f1 uh, at f1 because you get a very slim slice of like focus, and then everything is like this beautiful bokeh. Um, people want, uh, but this like this drives art directors crazy because they want like the front of the package to the back of the package in focus, and everything else in, in that sort of nice um, blur. Uh, so now here's a tool because it's capturing larger swaths of data. Like think about it. As bracketing focus, right, as well as exposure and all of these different things. So you can say, I want the like your face to this product totally in focus uh, at f sixteen focus, and then I want everything else to be completely blurred. Like we have now a tool that lets you do that. Um, That's kind of (laughs) crazy, like physically impossible, but because it's just data being redrawn um, to sort of suit whatever your purpose is. But now, if you can imagine the infinite possibilities of that like replacing backgrounds or whatever it is, like dropping something into the scene, like uh, things that would take teams of special effects folks uh, weeks to do, you can just do instantaneously. Like, of course you'd want that. Like, why wouldn't you (laughs) want that? (laughs) Like, that's obvious that you'd want that. Um, But we, we have to pick and choose because we're only a team of 120 people and you know, uh, what we choose to put into the product will will shape whether or not people buy it.
0: Cool, and we have time for one more question. I know you had your hand yeah, up, so. Yes.
1: I totally appreciate you bringing up the conversation about making the transition to guiding designers, you know, from being a designer. And I love what you're saying, this might be more common than a question, but I love what you're sharing um, in guiding the awareness of the designers. And I hear you using language like transitioning from looking at the data, using the data to, what does it feel like? Right. Because that really is what's going to open things up for yeah. designers to be creating for humans. Right. And to be connecting as a human through their creation. Totally. So I just I just totally appreciate that you're speaking about it out yeah. loud and that you have the <laughs> awareness that you have to oh be able thanks. to share. Yeah. It take, it just It takes a lot of awareness of yourself. Thanks. <laughs> <So laughs> but I, I think this is the future of design. Like um, like drawing buttons, uh, making layouts. Eventually, a computer will be able to do that <laughs> fairly simply, and almost everyone will have the tools to do it competently, right? But what people are really, uh, our computers are really bad at, is synthesizing data to create curate the su- right subset of information to present, or to to um, to use to, to create a better experience. That I don't think a computer can do yet.
0: <laughs> but
1: um, that, I mean, I think that if, if I'm always th- thinking about, I'm always thinking about the evolution of our discipline, our profession. And I'm always thinking, like, what tools could I create that basically kills off um, our profession? The, the things that are laborious now, which also, in turn, basically means that you know, people shouldn't have a job if they become stuck in this one like thing, unfortunately. Um, But I think that this is the, right, exactly. But everybody has to change and adapt and and evolve. And the future of design, I think, is the the right curation, like understanding how to work with data scientists, understanding how to work with data, that it's not prescriptive of what you should do. It's the foundation for how you create the next experience. Thanks for validating that.
0: See, now, now you're glad you took the front seat, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you all coming out uh, for our December soapbox. We'll see you all in 2015. Thank you, Wesley, thank for coming. You. We're give him a hand. Thank you. Yeah.